Briefly, I want to make a quick announcement to you just so that you are aware. Early this morning, Duke Cornell passed away. Duke, for those of you who may not know him and Ruth, was for decades and decades a leader in our midst, in our denomination here in North Texas, in several churches, lately our own, and uh, Duke was 93 years old and had many, many, many good years that God gave to him, 60 years or more of marriage to Ruth and uh, children and grandchildren and and many blessings uh, to him and many blessings through him to us, and so we give God thanks for that. Uh, we'll let you know when funeral arrangements are made so that you can be aware of that as well. Luke chapter 16 is where we are this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it there, Luke 16. A few weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the dishonest manager also here in Luke 16. I preached from that parable, which Jesus uses to call us to use our worldly wealth to accomplish God's desires. And the context of that parable carries over in verse 14 and leads Jesus into another money parable, actually, to show a man who does not use his wealth for kingdom purposes and for God's desires. And you young ones, as you listen along to this parable... Notice that the rich man in the parable asks Father Abraham something. He asks him to do something for his brothers. And it's really kind of a strange request. See if you can hear what it is as we read this parable, starting in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, that is, the parable of the shrewd manager, and they ridiculed Jesus for it. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it, or that is, everyone is urged to enter into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void." Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers 
so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would grant to us, again, eyes to see and ears to hear your word. Would you grant to us that we might understand your gospel and believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Money is a sensitive subject for us, isn't it? I mean, you don't just ask anyone how much they make. You don't just go up to someone and ask them how much they spent on their credit card bill this month. You just don't do that. You don't just go and ask someone how much their house costs or how much they give even. You just don't ask those sorts of questions to just anybody at any time. Money is a private matter, and yet it has a very public visibility at the same time. After all, it's fairly clear as your day-to-day life unfolds and the people that you're around and with and the people that you see, it's somewhat clear who has and who has not. I mean, the day laborer standing over on Park Lane in Shady Brook near Sam's knows, or at least he can pretty fairly clearly surmise, when I drive by in my air-conditioned car, that I could, if I wanted to, if I needed to, I could hire him for a few hours, if not a day or two, of work in my manicured landscape. And he'd be right. And likewise, I can surmise somewhat accurately as I drive by him, given the fact that he's standing there on that corner with the other day laborers, that he has really nothing to offer me materially except the work of his hands. We can all kind of sense that as we see people around us. I think the Bible speaks of material wealth, that is money and all that it brings with it, so often because it's such a staple part of our lives. I mean, you can't bake bread without flour. That's what makes flour a staple, as we call it. You can't bake a cake without sugar, at least not one that somebody wants to eat anyway, without sugar because it's a staple. It is a fundamental element of what it means to be a baked good. Right? The same way material wealth is, in many ways, a staple, a fundamental element of what it means to be a person, to be a human being. Whether for you that means abundance or scarcity, relatively speaking, material goods are a staple all the same of who you are and what you do in your life day to day. You know, we wear clothes on our backs and shoes on our feet, regardless of what label may or may not be on them or where we got them. We, we wear them. We have cars in our driveway or at least a bus pass in our pocket. One way or another, we have those material things. Books on our shelves and food on our tables. We live our lives with things, and things are good and necessary. They are, in fact, so good that our hearts are prone to believe in things more than in the one who gave them. 
things lend an immediacy of satisfaction to us that the kingdom of God simply can't. That the purposes of God's work in the world simply don't lend to us in such an immediate fashion, at least not in the form that we desire. And that immediacy of satisfaction is a staple element of our fallen condition. That was one of the points of the parable of the dishonest manager. After all, Jesus said there at the beginning of Luke 16 in that parable that if worldly people motivated by worldly material wealth take shrewd actions to increase their material standing, then why don't Christians motivated by heavenly hope take shrewd actions likewise to advance kingdom purposes? If material wealth, which is temporary, can so motivate, then why can't heavenly hope, which is eternal? And the answer is really pretty simple. The answer is because we don't really believe in heaven. Our heaven is a beer commercial. That's what we said a few weeks ago. It doesn't get any better than this, right? That's what we want to think because of the immediacy the satisfaction that things give to us. And so instead, we waste the Master's possessions. We squander what God's given to us. We, as it were, embezzle His gifts for our own immediate benefit rather than shrewdly using them to bless others, to advance God's kingdom to do the work that He's given to us to do in bringing redemption to the world that's around us. You can serve God with money, but you can't serve God and money. That was the point of the parable. But Jesus continues the thought here in the context because simple worldly greed is not really the heart of the matter. There's more that lies beneath here and a critical audience on the periphery of the first parable gives Jesus an opportunity to expose what really lies beneath. And it is this. We don't believe that God is enough. We don't believe that God is enough. The one who made all things. The one who spoke and there was light. The one who made man from the dust of the ground and who spun the stars into the heavens, we don't believe that God is enough. And so, with a quick review of the authority of Scripture and then a fanciful sort of yarn about heaven and hell, Jesus insists that God's good news and the word with which He communicates it are enough. That They are more staple than any other staple. They are enough to sustain us. Simply put, God's gospel is enough. God's gospel, God's good news is enough. The Pharisees here in this passage had heard the parable of the shrewd manager. They had been on the periphery of the audience listening in as Jesus spoke to his disciples. They heard what he said and Luke tells us what they did. They ridiculed him for it. They mocked him for it. They disagreed. They challenged his notion of those things for it. Luke tells us it's because they were lovers of money. 
But Jesus then tells us that there was more in their hearts than money. You are those, he says, who justify yourselves before men. But God knows what's in your hearts. More than money, these men had in their hearts a subtle disease that's very common to man. It's very common to to me, and it's very common to you. And it is self-justification. Self-justification. We do it all the time. Every time you explain yourself for anything, you are doing self-justification. It's just your nature. It's what you do. It's your fallen nature. Earlier in the summer, I got a ticket. I'll join Rich and Aaron in in our traffic ticket uh, group. And I got a ticket, and I didn't even know that I got it. I got a, a, a letter in the mail with a photograph of the back of our minivan, which would have made me blame Mary for it. (laughs) However, it identified the day and the time and the location of where it happened. And I knew that it was the day that I drove her and two of our kids to the airport. She wasn't driving. I was driving. And I know that I passed through that intersection. It said that I ran the red light, but I don't run red lights. I promise I don't. And so the self-justification began, and I actually even called our insurance company to ask, all right, so this was a camera at the intersection. Nobody was there. They didn't stop me. No person saw this, and I don't even remember it. And so is this going to be held against us on our insurance? And the lady said, no, 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 don't worry about it. Those cameras at the intersections, they can't prove anything, and we can't hold that against you. In fact, she said, it's really just a racket. It's a moneymaker for the city. She was helping me to self-justify myself. She said, in fact, probably what happened was you turn right at the red light. They get you all the time for that. If you didn't stop perfectly before you turn right, they'll get you for that. I thought, oh, that's got to be what it was. (laughs) We self-justify every time we explain ourselves. It's just what we do. We have to do it. It's our fallen nature. Even if you didn't do anything wrong, your guilty conscience still tells you to defend yourself. It's natural to us because justification is the gospel. Justification is the news that everybody needs to have. It's the good news that God has given that is enough. It is the gospel. The biblical definition of it is in 2 Corinthians 5.21. You can find it throughout the Bible, but in its most concise form, Paul says, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you hear the two sides of it there. God made Jesus to be our sin and he made us to be his righteousness. That's justification, simply put. There's a theological definition that the Westminster divines gave to us in our catechism. Justification is an act of God's free grace by which he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ credited to us and received by faith alone. It's a good definition. A little bit wordy, heavily theological, and and very complete, I think. I want to offer you a a definition theologically of self-justification, though. Self-justification is a fabrication of the will by which a man ignores his own sins and declares himself right in his own sight, only for his own efforts, and received by imagination alone. 
The Westminster divines did not waste their time coming up with that. I did that. That's what self-justification is. It's a fabrication. It's imagination. It's self-justification. And for these Pharisees, self-justification meant maintaining a standard of living so that the privileged around them would respect them and maintaining a standard of law-keeping so that they themselves could be respectful in the world in their own eyes. That's what self-justification meant to them, and so they mocked Jesus for His view of both of those things. Their mockery here is a challenge to Jesus' authority. In essence, they're saying to Him, who's going to show the way to God? You or us? Who's going to show the way to God? Jesus or the religious authorities of the day? And Jesus doesn't ignore the challenge that they pose, and He begins to explain to them the law and the prophets, the the Word of God coming from the Old Testament. He says that the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. And since then, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom is preached. And all are urged to enter into it. But he says, the law is still in force, nevertheless. The law is still there because the law, that is, the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets, the scripture of Jesus' day, the law looked forward to the gospel. The law promised, in fact, the gospel. And in light of the gospel, the law shows the depth of your self-justifying heart. In fact, he explains, it isn't just a woman who's guilty of divorce, he says in this odd little quip about divorce. It's not just a woman who's guilty of divorce. It's a man, a man who divorces his wife. He's the one who carries the weight of it as well. It's kind of an odd comment, but it's a statement of Jesus' authority. In a sense, he's saying to these Pharisees, the law says more than you think it does. You self-justifying Pharisees, the law requires more of you than you think. And it requires more of you than you can even deliver. And if self-justification is what you want, then enjoy it now. Because a day will come when its insufficiency will be obvious. They had rejected the parable regarding the use of their wealth to serve God's purposes. And so Jesus, in turn, gives them a parable showing the consequences of that rejection. And the point of this parable, which is kind of an odd parable, you have to admit, the point of the parable is not to introduce us to the geography of heaven and hell. So don't be misled by that. It's it's a fanciful yarn, as it were, of heaven and hell... That's not the point of it. It's purely illustrative. Rather, the point is to paint a sharp contrast between these two men. The rich man here goes nameless, meaning, really, I think, that he is every man who rejects the shrewdness of serving God and others with the generosity of personal wealth. Everyone who rejects that shrewdness is this rich man. He is a direct contrast to the rich man of the previous parable. The one who in verse 9 is exhorted in that odd statement by Jesus to use your worldly wealth to make friends, to, that is, bless people here so that when your worldly wealth fails you, those friends will receive you into eternal dwellings. 
This man is a direct contrast to that. This man had all kinds of opportunity to do that, and he refused. He rejected that shrewdness. The poor man, unlike the rich man, is actually named. And that's odd for a parable. Jesus doesn't usually name the characters in his parables, but here he does. Carefully so, Lazarus. God is my helper. That's who this man is, because that's what God is for all who believe the gospel. The one lives in sumptuous luxury, and the other lives in humiliating poverty. And it's clear that the difference between these two men is twofold, economic and spiritual. Now, the economic difference is very real. It would be irresponsible of us to just gloss over it and super-spiritualize it and pretend that Jesus didn't really mean money here. He just meant the condition of somebody's soul. No, the economic condition is very real in the difference between these two men. You know, when most of the world looks at North America, they see people who resemble this man. When most of the world looks at This church, they see people who very well, daily, could be dining at this sumptuous feast that this man enjoyed every day. When most of the world looks at me, they see a man dressed in purple cloth cloth and fine linen who has gates at the end of his driveway and is separated from the world that is in need. When most of the world looks at us, they see people who represent, who resemble very closely this man, unless, unless our posture towards the needy shows otherwise. Part of the benefit of uh, a mission trip to Ecuador, which we took just a few weeks ago, is that you're forced to recognize this. You're forced in a completely different context than what you're accustomed to, to recognize that most people don't have what we have. Most people don't have all of the material things that we take for granted. And we take much for granted. Much, much, much for granted. And most people just don't have it. The material wealth that we have can blind us to the spiritual wealth that we must have, that we need. The spiritual difference then is also very real, though. And the spiritual difference between these two men is simply justification. It's justification. The one took the staple of material wealth and he rested in the immediate satisfaction that it provided. He rested in the self-justification of what it allowed for him in society. The other one had no staples to claim. He had no immediate satisfaction to enjoy and the street dogs reminded him of it every day that he had nothing like that. He had no one to show him mercy except for the one whose mercy is forever. God is my helper. And so he was. The one was self-justified and the other, by faith, was truly justified. The Old Testament to which Jesus appealed to these Pharisees draws the economic and the spiritual factors together in a very powerful way. In Deuteronomy 24, the people of Israel are on the verge of entering into the promised land, a land 
where they are promised material provision. God has told them, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you rich lands and your farms will produce abundantly. You'll have all that you need. And on the verge of entering into that land in Deuteronomy 24, as Moses recounts to them God's goodness to them over their years of wandering in the desert, he tells them this, you shall, that is, you must show grace and patience, mercy and kindness to anyone who owes you a debt financially. He doesn't say simply dismiss their debts and pretend that it didn't happen, but he says show them grace and patience and mercy and long-suffering and kindness to anyone who owes you a debt, no matter who it is, a servant or a stranger, whoever it is, show them grace and patience. And God says to them, remember, you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. And then further he says to them, you shall, that is, you must, when you harvest your crops, leave the spare of your harvest in the field for the sojourner, for the widow, for the orphan, the fatherless, the poor. Leave the spare of your harvest in the field so that they might have food to eat. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That redemption, that reclaiming of God from Egypt, of His people, is a real historical event And it's also a historical picture. It's a historical picture of the Lord God redeeming and reclaiming us from our own sin. It is a historical picture of justification. Remember, you were a slave to your sin. And the Lord your God reclaimed you. He redeemed you from it. And so, have mercy on the poor. Show kindness to the needy. Be patient with those who owe you. And reach out and care for those who have need. God's good news, God's gospel is enough. This man, oddly, remarkably even so here, actually seems to grasp that truth in his anguish in the parable. He makes an odd request of Father Abraham. You young ones, did you notice what it was? The response that Abraham gives to him, though, is that not only is God's gospel enough, But the word by which he communicates it is also enough. One way that you know this parable is not the place to take the intricacies of heaven and hell and detail all the details of that is simply that this man, in the anguish of the fires of Hades, actually shows more compassion for his brothers than many of your kids do on a good day. I don't know, maybe I'm just remembering when I was the youngest of four children and I didn't get this kind of compassion on a typical day, but here he is in the fires of Hades feeling a softness of heart for his brothers who are in his own, his same predicament. And a man like this condemned to Hades would not be doing this. I mean, he would, not, he would be pointing fingers and accusing his brothers of being worse off than he He would be self-justifying, wouldn't he? But that's not the point here. The point is that Jesus has set up the parable in order to make these Pharisees face down the Scripture that they claim so dismissively. I beg you, Father, 
He says, send Lazarus to my five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. He wants a messenger. He wants a resurrection. He wants a miracle to turn his wealthy and equally calloused brothers to repentance. And you would think that this was an opportunity. You know, you would think that it was a chance for salvation even on a massive scale in one family. You'd think that if God is the one who leaves the 99 in search of the one lost sheep, then he'd surely take this request for five, don't you think? I mean, how hard would it be? He raised one Lazarus, surely he could raise another one, right? But Abraham's response is a little bit calloused, isn't it? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. I mean, it's almost like, let them eat cake. You know? It's almost like, you're, you're suffering in anguish in Hades. Let them eat cake. I mean, it's just so dismissive. I mean, how could this answer come from Abraham? Presumably from God himself. How could it be so? The rich man insists, no, no, no. Father Abraham, listen, you don't understand. If someone will go to them from the dead, then they'll repent. Let me make myself clear. If they see a resurrection, then they'll repent. Do you ever wonder what it would take to make someone believe? I mean, does it ever occur to you, what would it take to make that hard-hearted relative of mine actually believe? They never believe what I have to say, but, but maybe if something were to happen to them, that would call it, what would it take? What would it take? I mean, maybe you, yourself, maybe you would actually even begin to believe in heaven if your long-deceased grandfather showed up at the foot of your bed one night in the form of a towering, glorified angel and said to you, Wake up. You're not in a dream. I'm telling you, it's true. Heaven is really there. Believe it and actually start using your money shrewdly for the kingdom of God. What if your grandfather showed up at your bedside in that way and told you that? Would you then believe in heaven, do you think? I mean, what would it take? Jesus says, no. No. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, that is, if they don't listen to the scripture if they care not for what God has said in His Word, then neither will they be convinced, even if somebody should rise from the dead. Even if somebody should rise from the dead, they won't be convinced. After all, what happened sometime later, a man did rise from the dead, and many people saw him, and yet they didn't believe. Yet they didn't believe. If they don't believe what God has said in His Word, they won't be convinced, even if this happens. The rich man wants a sign for his brothers, but what they've been given is enough. I mean, they could have listened to so many things, couldn't they? Deuteronomy 14, they might have listened to this. Bring all the tithe of your produce out into the town so that the poor and needy can come and eat. Or they might have heard this. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, you shall not harden your heart against him, but lend him what he needs. Or they could have listened to Isaiah 58. This is the fast I choose, to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own people. Or they could have listened equally to Ezekiel 18. If a man oppresses the poor and the needy, he shall not live. 
He shall surely die. Or they could have listened to Amos 5. Because you trample on the poor, you will not benefit. I know how great are your sins that you afflict the righteous and turn aside the needy at the gate. Or they could have listened to Micah 6. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Instead, here this self-justified man is still seeking self-justification. He's still arguing his way. He's trying to convince Father Abraham of a better way because, well, he's right. He's self-justified. And the gospel-justified man, Lazarus, did you notice? He doesn't say a word. He doesn't have to. Because God's words are enough. God has chosen to work miracles through gospel and through word. Our mission trip took us to Shell, Ecuador, as you know, and in Shell, in the center, the, the small town square in that little town, there is a fountain in the middle of a playground with a makeshift oil rig rising out of it. It's not very tall. The oil rig commemorates the Shell Oil Company, which I think founded the town and at least the airstrip that is still there many decades ago when they were exploring for oil. And on top of that oil rig is... I, th- I think it's the replica of a small, yellow, single-engined airplane. Apparently, many of the people in the town don't know why it's there, but why it's there is it's a replica of the airplane that was flown by the five American missionaries back in the 1950s who moved there from Chicago for their purposes. In the 1950s, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, you may know the story, and three other of their friends, along with all five of their families, wives, and children, moved from Chicago, I think it was, to Ecuador in order to reach the unreached indigenous tribes in the jungles of Ecuador. And these men flew that single-engine yellow plane out to locate and to reach the Waldani tribe, the, the local indigenous people there. And they were received with some hesitancy when they first made contact, but they offered gifts and kindnesses to the people, and and it allowed them to be received at first. But eventually something went terribly wrong, and these five missionary men were speared to death in the riverbed where they had met these um, indigenous people. And while their wives and children waited back in Shell for news because these men were missing for some days, They finally heard that the men had been murdered. The families, of course, recoiled at first in fear and concern and worry and and shock at what had happened. But then, deciding that the gospel was enough, apparently they resolved, at least some of them did, to stay there. And over the coming years, some of these American widows and now orphans forsook the American material wealth to which they presumably could have returned easily enough. And they gradually befriended and even lived with the killers of their husbands and their fathers, showing them and explaining to them God's good news simply from God's word. And because God's gospel was enough, And because the word by which he gave it was enough, 
a church was born there, which remains today, where there was only death before. Jesus can't ignore our material wealth. He can't ignore it. It's, it's just as obvious and plain as day as it can be. It's a good gift from God, but the immediate satisfaction that it offers to us is no rest. God's gospel is enough. Only His justification will endure. And God's word is enough. You don't need new miracles. Believe what you've been given. It is enough. Father, we pray that You would grant to us eyes to see that we might believe that Your Gospel is enough. That we might recognize that Your Word is enough to persuade us of it. We pray that as You do that, You would cause us to turn away from the immediate satisfactions that we enjoy with our material possessions and that You would turn us instead to use what we have shrewdly to serve You and to bless those around us that they might see Your hand at work in and around them. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.